Yeah, we are going to engage. gentlemen welcome to the very first episode of a new ongoing star trek podcast called discovery debrief i'm one of your hosts chris clow and i'm joined by rachel clow hello cicero holmes hello and zaki hassan howdy howdy so this is pretty exciting just because I know that I'm talking with three giant Star Trek fans, and hopefully you at home are a big Star Trek fan as well, because this is the first series, Star Trek Discovery, is the first series that's been on the air in 12 years. It was 2005 when Star Trek Enterprise went off the air. So the idea of new television Star Trek is a pretty exciting prospect. So what I want to do, since this is our very, very first episode, is go around our wonderful panel and get a little bit of a brief description of who everybody is, why you guys love Star Trek, and what your favorite series and movie is. So, Cicero, why don't we start with you, man? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Cicero Holmes. Uh, the internet knows me as Stubby Stan, one-fourth of the unbelievably wonderful Spawn on Me podcast, um, a video game podcast where we feature uh, people of color and talk about diversity within the game space and and uh, definitely don't steer away from uh, both politics, hip hop, culture, and uh, video games and how all of those things touch and intersperse. Um, the Let's see, why am I a fan of Star Trek? It's because it is the idealized version of of our future, the future of the human race. Um, you know, so you know, not only uh, was Gene Roddenberry a visionary when it came to what he was able to do in in 1968, um, but also uh, there have been so many innovations that we've seen that have uh, come directly from. Star Trek and and the visionary uh, thoughts and patterns of of the people within it. Uh, so I love this. I love the series for that. My favorite uh, series on television from Star Trek from the Star Trek universe has got to be Deep Space Nine. Um, you know, the first commander of color that was there with Commander Cisco, um, and just the the amount of conflict that they were able to do. Uh, on Deep Space Nine and, and the storylines that they were able to uh, uh, put together, I thought were phenomenal and the best that the series has ever done. Uh, my favorite movie would either have to be The Wrath of Khan or The Voyage Home. Okay. Uh, yeah, because I, you know, I've got to got to grab the mouse and say computer. computer. <laughs> awesome. Well, and uh, just as a quick aside too. I love Spawn on Me. You guys had me as a guest on it once, and it is a fantastic show. And if you've got the NPR One app, you may have heard this gentleman's voice before. So 
definitely making waves and i'm just even more honored to have you here with us talking new star trek right on thank you zacky my friend how about you uh well as far as my my trek fandom i think it goes back to to right around uh when i came into this world i can't remember uh star trek not being a part of my life you know it's something that uh, as I was growing up, my brother was into it. My brother's five years older than me. So sort of by osmosis, it was something that I was always exposed to. I would say that my fandom kicked in like a latent, you know, mutant X gene. It kicked in uh, when I was around eight years old. I saw, I saw The Wrath of Khan for the first time on, on VHS in 1988, I want to say. And that watching that movie... And it was it was you know it was not my first exposure to Star Trek because I'd seen the motion picture I'd seen some episodes of the show uh, I'd even seen some of the Next Generation at that point I think um, the the pilot at least but the the Wrath of Khan was that was it man once I saw that I never turned back and I was I was in I watched all the movies after that I I would check out whatever books I could like nonfiction books I could find about the making of the, the TV series and movies at the time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a hell of a run, you know, I, Chris, you know, this, I, I, I've been sharing uh, star Trek with my kids now. And for the last year we've been watching the next generation and we're now watching deep space nine as well. Cause we're going in broadcast order. And it's one of the joys in my life is having this thing that uh, we get to share together. And we watched the pilot episodes of uh, Discovery together, which is really cool, uh, where where my kids and I are both experiencing Star Trek for the first time, for the first time. That's got to be surreal. I mean, that's already a massive undertaking that you're doing, and I, I applaud you for going through in broadcast order. That's really awesome. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, ha- actually getting the chance to sit down with them for Star Trek that's new to both of you, that's got to be a little a little surreal. It's super cool. That's awesome. And uh, where can people find you and where have people seen you before? Uh, well, uh, I, I have two regular podcasts right now. I have the movie film podcast that I co-host with my partner, Brian Hall, who is a writer for the Disney series Puppy Dog Pals. And we get together every other week and we talk about the latest headlines out of Hollywood, new releases, and, and uh, just banter. And then uh, I have another show called Nostalgia Theater, which is in-depth interviews with the people behind the things I love and uh, fellow fans of the things I love. And uh, while we're talking Star Trek, I've had some great conversations related to that. About a year ago, I talked to Brandon Braga, who co-created Star Trek Enterprise, and we spent an hour talking about that show specifically, Uh, also uh, dropping just... uh, Tomorrow, actually, is uh, my interview with Mark Altman, who is a journalist and Star Trek fan. He's also a producer of the TNT series, The Librarians. And we talk about Star Trek The Next Generation's 30th anniversary, which is going to be uh, the day after we record this. So uh, lots of fun stuff. Oh, and also I'm doing a series of feature commentaries of all the Star Trek movies uh, alongside Glenn Greenberg, who's a Star Trek fiction and comic book writer. Excellent. So highly embedded, of course, which is exactly what we're looking for here. And, you know, you mentioned Enterprise. It's kind of fun. It's great that you got to talk to Brandon Braga, but uh, it's kind of funny how the rose-colored lenses of history might be making that show better, especially in hindsight, because I'm sure you guys remember just how trashed it was while it was actually on the air, but little did we know it would be 12 years before we'd get a new show out of it. You could do a whole show on... 
how underappreciated and kind of before its time Enterprise was. Uh, I'm totally right agree. with you on that one. Yeah, absolutely. So now we move to our next panelist, who I recently joined in matrimony, <laughs> Rachel, Rachel Clow. Tell us about yourself, why you're a big fan of Star Trek, and uh, favorite movie, series, all that stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, I am not a podcaster like everyone else, so I have a little bit of imposter syndrome right now. Um, I am a uh, scientist by trade. I'm a biologist. And um, so Star Trek has always really appealed to me because it's kind of like what what I wanted science to be or what I, what I thought science would be. It's about exploring the unknown and um, just learning about other people and other cultures and, and, and enjoying the, the thrill of, of discovery. Um, and I don't know, I guess that's not really what science is actually like when you're working in it, unfortunately. Well, but, but it, it, it heightens it, right? I mean, that's what all good fiction is supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Like, it makes it makes me feel, like, good. Um, and so Star Trek was really just sort of all around me while I was growing up. Um, I grew up in the 90s, so, like, TNG was just sort of on the TV all the time. And I didn't really, like... I tried to get it on DVD through Netflix when Netflix was still, like, DVD only, and I always just sort of, like, ran out of gas because, like, I wanted something else, and it's, like, a huge series. So I never actually watched it all the way through until it was on streaming, and then I just sort of, like, chugged through everything in about a year, um, and I have just kept cycling through it since then, and I've, you know, like, I haven't seen a bunch of... Uh, newer shows because I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to watch Star Trek again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what is your favorite series? Is it Next Gen then? No, it's Deep Space Nine. Oh, I, I think Deep Space Nine is the better series objectively. And what about movie? Um, First Contact. First Contact. Oh, Excellent. Great, great film. Great film. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of my personal favorites. Um, well, so I guess that... Pretty much, you know, that actually brings something to mind, though, before I give my slight details. Um, I've introduced several people to Deep Space Nine because as good of a show as it is, it's almost Star Trek's best kept secret. And I don't understand why. Uh, I mean, it. I guess just because it was sandwiched in between Next Generation and Voyager, maybe that's part of it. But I'm always gratified when I hear how much people love that show. It's, so, you know, with, with Deep Space Nine, I think, uh, to, to your, just to piggyback off what you're saying, the, the most gratifying thing for me as someone who was pretty much on board the entire time, and I felt like I was screaming into the wind trying to tell people, this is a great show, you know, yeah. is just the, the wheel came around, and it's almost like the world caught up to the, the kind of consumption model that, that really deep, deep Space Nine benefits from, which is you sit down and you binge a whole bunch of episodes in a row. Uh, out, of, out of all of the post-original uh, uh, series shows, Deep Space Nine is the most bingeable. Totally. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, it was the first show to really introduce a long-form narrative into the, the formula of the franchise. Exactly. Which, uh, which, was, which was great. 
Uh, so I am Chris Clow. I'm a writer at movies.com and I've done podcasting and writing for a bunch of other places, including Batman on film. I co-host a podcast called Geek Pulse Radio every week. And I also host my own show called Comics on Consoles, which is strictly about comics-based video games. Um, I have been a Star Trek fan, kind of like Zacky. I've never known a world without it. And it appeals to me because I am inherently an optimist and I choose to believe in people. And so does Star Trek, generally. Uh, Favorite show is probably the original, just because the triumvirate of those core three characters of Captain Kirk, Spock, and Dr. McCoy is something that, as much as I love the other shows, as immensely as I love the other shows, that's a core dynamic that I don't think has ever really been replicated. Uh, So the original series to me is unique in that regard. However, if I had to objectively say which show I thought was the best, and I think I've spoken to all of you guys in, in this capacity before, objectively I would probably have to say Deep Space Nine is the best. Uh, not just because it managed to maintain the core optimism, but also because it challenged a lot of the preconceived notions that go into a utopian vision of humanity. But it didn't do so in a way that felt deconstructive, I guess. So... I love that. Favorite movie in the franchise is actually Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, the second one directed by Nicholas Meyer. And uh, is kind of for the same reason that I love Deep Space Nine so much. First of all, it was a wonderful send-off for the original crew. And second of all, it was an optimistic message that was cloaked in a relatively dark movie. And I love that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm a big Batman fan, so that kind of resonates with me. But... Uh, All right, so that's who we are, and now we're pretty much going to get into what this show is about. So we have a couple of other little introductory things before we actually start talking about the episode content. So go back, my friends, to when Star Trek Discovery was first announced, when we didn't really know too much about it. What were your guys' hopes right out of the gate? Zachy, why don't we start with you? Oh, man. You know, I... I I was just hopeful that it would be something distinctive that measured up to uh, the, you know, the, the long gap. So I was kind of like, we've gone this long without, so I really want something that, that makes the, the wait worth it. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm pretty easy, you know, when it comes to, to Star Trek, I think I, I mentioned to somebody else, I'm kind of bought and paid for. Well, I'm like, you know, if, if it has the word star and Trek next to each other in the title, you you've got me committed for at least a little bit. I'm 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 not somebody you need to win over. Sure, Cicero, how about you? Yeah, I, I'll take I'll take Zachy's uh, phrasing one one step further. If it's got the word star in it, whether it be <laughs> wars or Trek, uh, you've got me. I'm I'm you know I'm there, bought and sold, uh, bought and paid for, and uh, and that's that's basically what was happening. I you know I. I wasn't sure if Discovery was going to be good, um, uh, or, or great or terrible. Um, I just knew that I was going to be there day one, ready to watch. Perfect. Rachel. Um, I was kind of like freaked out because like, I feel like all of the Star Trek series have had like first episodes or like first whole seasons that were kind of like weird and bad (laughs) and like, or just different from the rest of the show. And I feel like that kind of thing isn't allowed to happen in TV anymore. And so I was like really freaked out that it was going to be kind of weird or bad. 
and um, I would still like it probably, but like that they would actually cancel it or not have it on anymore and not give it a chance. But yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I kind of felt cautious at first too, just because uh, well, at least I think because I knew it was going to be an entirely set of different production personnel, some of which who are informed by the newer movies and not necessarily the people that we were used to developing new Star Trek series back in the franchise's heyday. So um, I guess that made me a little bit nervous about it. But the fact that Star Trek was coming back to TV, I mean, very much like like you two guys, I mean, it's Star Trek. It is one of my absolutely favorite franchises in all of fiction. I mean, if I had to rank things, I'm probably a little bit more of like a DC Comics fan, but Star Trek is nipping at its heels and at some days totally surpasses that. I love this franchise so inherently that the idea of new experiences there, especially in the original timeline of all the series was extraordinarily exciting for me. So it mostly came down to, uh, I guess, to cautious optimism. I wouldn't say I was pessimistic about it by any means. I mean, the fact that Star Trek was coming back was enough of a hope for me. But then that kind of brings us into our next talking point here, because Star Trek has reemerged in television in a totally changed landscape. Uh, When Enterprise went off the air in 2005, virtually none of the ways that we now commonly consume television even existed, nor were they uh, probably even conceived of yet in any meaningful capacity. So I guess that kind of leads to the idea of what kind of place does Star Trek have in the modern television landscape? Cicero, do you have a a thought? Well, I I, I think that it's it's there for the old fans and i wonder if it's going to find a new audience uh, uh some people that aren't uh related to zaki uh who will actually <laughs> who who will who will actually come to it on their own having never really consumed although i don't know who that person would be but having never really consumed star trek at least star trek on the television um you know the 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 star trek universe of the of the motion picture uh the you know the motion picture universe of that jj abrams kind of created is something very different although i and i think we'll kind of get into it later on later on in the show i think that you can definitely see some of that dna within within discovery within yes. at least the very first two episodes um so i i think that there is a there is a good chance for it to both ingratiate itself to new fans uh and hopefully not alienate older and longer standing fans sure and kind of piggybacking on that before we get to Zaki, i know that you were your your attention was very much grabbed by the Fox show, uh, The Orville by Seth MacFarlane. Did that kind of get you in the mindset of preparing for new Star Trek? Or was this just something that you were looking forward to because of Seth MacFarlane or something else that you were a fan of? Well, it, so it got me it got me excited because I'm a sucker for sci fi. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. definitely a sucker for space sci fi more more specifically. Um, so I, you know, they, I, I hearken back to, um, there were, uh, 
two of the guys from Always Sunny were going to do a show. They had pitched a show where they were going to be a crew members on a spaceship where they talk about all the things that happen in between the big tentpole moments in a, in a Star Trek where they, mm. you know, they're not fighting the Borg or they're, you know, interacting yeah. with Q. It's the, the stuff in between. So when I saw that the Orville was coming and Seth MacFarlane was coming, coming with it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a quasi fan of Seth MacFarlane. Sometimes he hits, sometimes he misses, but the beats are basically the same. And the thing that I really, I, you know, I wanted to give it a shot. And the things that I, the thing that I loved about, uh, the Orville, is that it really is a love letter to TNG when it comes to the stories. Right. And and if you guys have seen it, um the the special effects are out of this world. They are incredibly 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 good. Um the thing that was turning me off was the dialogue. Uh, some of the writing, the stories were great, the writing was bad. Uh, but now three episodes in, I think I'm hooked. I think I'm on, I'm on, I'm on board, uh, with the Orville. And if people were, uh, either, either felt like me or were kind of curious about it, I say, go to the third episode. And if you're not in by the third episode, then, you know, go ahead and, and put it, put it down. But mm -hmm. I'm, I'm definitely on board with the Orville. Zachy, place of Star Trek in modern television. And did you watch the Orville? Did you like it? Uh, yeah, let me, well, let me start with the Orville. I, I have watched it. I'm actually like 10 minutes into the third one. So, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to finish that soon. You know, I'm, I haven't been, been blown away by it, but it hasn't turned me off either. It, it's one of those, I'll, I watch it when I get to it shows. And that's not meant, in, that's, I'm not denigrating it. It's just, uh, I, my my time is <laughs> less less available for uh for for uh, more tv unfortunately but um i i think I, my 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 read on the orville is it's basically seth MacFarlane went to fox and essentially sold them on doing a multi-million dollar star trek cosplay <laughs> and and i'm not that's not me that's not a criticism that's that's an admiration yeah, sure. Like I love that he's that much of a fan. That he's he has that so much clout with Fox. He could he could pull that in any direction. He's like, this is what I want to do, and I'm like, you know what? Good for him. I want to do a Star Trek show, and oh by the way, uh, Adrian Palicki is going to be my love interest. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so so it's it's nice to have a show like that. I I think uh, so far it's it's like comfort food, and I think there is a place for that. And and I'll draw a correlation to Star Trek. I think Star Trek's place on TV up to this point has been, to some extent, comfort food. And I think, uh, you know, from 1987 to 2005, uh, what was its biggest appeal was also, I think, what worked against it, which was that it was always there. It was just it was something you could always count on tuning in and somewhere you could find new Star Trek. It was there until it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and I think what what its role is now is i i don't know to be honest i think what what it represents as in what the franchise represents is something that's very unique notwithstanding a pastiche like the orville which is an optimistic future where we made it and we have a whole rainbow of people who are working together and solving problems and my god if this is not the moment where we desperately need fiction pointing the <laughs> yeah. way towards that you know uh 
as far as specifically whether Discovery will speak to that, I mean, uh, that's my hope. Uh, I don't know that we have enough yet to make that determination, but I'm, I, sure. there are always possibilities. <laughs> nice get. I like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as the Orville is concerned, just briefly, Rachel and I watched the first episode last night, and I enjoyed it. I thought that it was – it came at an appropriate time since Discovery is now on the air, and obviously the Orville premiered a little bit before that. It sort of feels like with the weight of a Fox show behind Star Trek-style TV – that's only going to be good for Star Trek and for the franchise's awareness because people will learn that it's based off of Star Trek. I was a little bit bitter that it had such good special effects because I feel like TNG and Deep Space Nine never got to have those great special effects. (laughs) The Orville gets them, right? Yeah, well, Well, that's That's the difference between being on a network as opposed to being syndicated. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. Hopefully we'll still be getting that Deep Space Nine HD remaster sometime, but uh, I'm not not holding my breath, unfortunately. All right, so uh, let's move on to episode one, and let's actually get into the meat of this. All right, so episode one, The Vulcan Hello. Just... By the way, I thought that was a really interesting title when it was first revealed, and when I saw its context, I was very kind of taken aback by it, but we'll we'll get to that. Uh, so I think first things first. So you have now all seen the very first episode of the newest Star Trek TV show. So what comes to mind immediately when you think of the Vulcan Hello? Rachel, why don't we start with you? Oh, um, confusion? Confusion. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, it was just so unlike any other pilot of maybe any other show that I've ever seen. And that, um, I mean, in the, uh, in the credits, first of all, it like puts in this special guest star, Michelle Yeoh, so you know that that character is not going to be in in the rest of the show. And so you're like, okay, well, there's three characters, and one of them is not a special guest star. Um, So, yeah, it was just, I was, I didn't, this isn't the ship, this Mm -hmm. isn't the discovery, this isn't the captain, I was shown that I was going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I just, I was confused. Played with the formula. Yes. At least what sure. we were used to. Zachy, how about you? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny uh, that Rachel mentions the thing with Michelle Yeoh, because to me that was so glaring a, like, a, a choice. I was going to say mistake, but I, I to me it's just a perplexing choice, because you, that, that to me, you've, you've blown the surprise, uh, mm. Because e- even if sure. if you just based on episode one, you know, okay, well, Michelle Yeoh's not long for this show, and and without knowing what specifically is going to happen to her, I mean, it's just one of those odd choices because th- all they had to do was not put that in the in the titles, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sure. it, as far as what sticks out to me, uh, definitely the aesthetic. I I was paying special attention to how it is very evocative of sort of what we got. Uh, of the Kelvin in the 2009 Star Trek movie. Yeah. And that to me 
it, it, it stuck out, and not necessarily in a negative way, but they, they made a conscious decision to not even attempt to evoke uh, the cage, which is, you know, the original Star Trek pilot, which this is meant to be set contemporaneous with. Instead, they said, no, we're going to go for, for future modern or modern future, how, you know, uh, what, we got, what we got in the Abrams movie. And by the way, that's still like canonically sound. So I'm, I don't have a quibble with that, but uh, the aesthetic choice there definitely stuck out to me. Sure. Cicero. Yeah, I, I've got I've to gotta break a little bit from the rest of the panel and say that I never, I, I wasn't uh, surprised by the, the early credit with the special guest on Michelle Yeoh because I knew that a, a well, first off, I knew that if a, a, an actor of her caliber, of her gravitas, was going to be hitched to the show for a long period of time, that she would have been doing all the press. Sure. And 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 because of that, and you know, and knowing that she was on the show, I knew that she wouldn't be on the show for for long. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that part didn't didn't surprise me at all. Um, I think the thing that when I think of the Vulcan hello, in retrospect, I th- I think of how well they were able to use the fact that you know that that the fact that. Fans already understand what this universe is. They under, you know, they didn't have to do the 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 literal universe building that most pilots have to have to uh, suffer through, and they used that to allow themselves to hit the ground running. And they ran in a direction that you never would have expected a Star Trek series to to run. Sure. Zach, you have something to add? Yeah, j- just to, add, I I definitely agree that I mean, if you're if you're sort of plugged in and aware, obviously Michelle Yeoh not being a regular isn't a huge surprise. But I I feel like the, if this is a show that's aiming at a wider audience, which one assumes that's why uh, they, it aired on CBS, the pilot. It it seem it's one of those like narrative things where you're just like ah, you know, it's a shame to kind of give away the game a little bit like not it's not not enough to it didn't ruin the the episode certainly for me because as as you said sister i mean you kind of you you know enough about the show to know that that's not going to be the case but just uh just if you're if you're if you're coming in and you all you you recognize michelle yo it seems like a little thing that they could have little surprise they could have saved sure yeah sure i can see that um i guess as far as i'm concerned the, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, is departure. Uh, it starts off immediately. I mean, first of all, the production design on this show is astonishing. Uh, from, from what I understand, the opening scene was shot in Jordan, I believe. And uh, that's got to be the first for a Star Trek TV show, having to or getting the chance to go to a sweeping location like that. Uh, so automatically it's opening up in a huge visual uh, treat, which I thought was very, very cool. Uh, as far as the rest of the content is concerned, uh, it's it, it did an effective job of introducing the primary character, and I think that's what its major purpose is. Because you know, obviously, that we're getting a an opening two parter, but only the first part is going to be broadcast on on a giant network. So it wanted to suck me in, and as far as being a Star Trek fan, I felt pretty sucked in. So I thought that it, it was it was generally good. Now, that moves on to our next point. So we've now seen the pilot episode. 
and compared with other Star Trek pilots, this has to be somewhere in the pecking order. So, Cicero, compared with other Star Trek pilots that you've seen, where does the Vulcan Hello rank? Oh, man. Wow. It's, uh... So, it... It doesn't rank as high. I think while it, I don't know necessarily was the greatest, but the TNG's pilot episode um, was the most impactful for me um, because it was, you know, it was the first trek on the small screen in, you know, 20, 20 odd years. And uh, so, you know, just seeing that it was back uh, in a very real way with a new crew and, you know, further into the future was was definitely something that uh, that made a bigger, uh, a more lasting impact on me. Um, I think time will tell uh, where this one ranks, um, but it was definitely can't miss TV. It, you know, it had me on the edge of edge of my seat. I never knew exactly where it was going to go. And and I really appreciated every moment of it. So I would rank it really high. Excellent. Rachel. Well, Chris, <laughs> you and I have a thing where you ask me to rank things and yeah. I am unable to do it for some reason. <laughs> and I think this is going to be one of those times because I feel like I need to see more of the show before I know. Before you rank the pilot? Yeah, because like the pilot doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It exists within the context, wider context of the show. So like, I don't know, like I think Encounter at Farpoint isn't as good of a pilot because the rest of the show was so much better than it was. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I'm always asking her stupid questions like, who would win between Batman and Spider-Man and stuff like that. So she's probably a little (laughs) sick of that. Zachy, how about you? Yeah, you know, I I think that the the problem we have is that this new series is so beholden to sort of the new TV paradigm, which is one continuous story in essence, as opposed to sort of the episodic model of, of all prior Star Trek shows, at least in the... The the done-in-ones, as we say in the comic book world. That's right. Easily syndicated, you know? Um, I I think that it's difficult to judge this on its own because because every single previous Star Trek pilot, including The Cage, the episode ends and you have a clear sense of your cast, the the setting, and, and the mission. And... In truth, we have none of that at the end of the Vulcan Hello. If we if we view that in isolation, and then even if we were to view it, you know, as a piece with with the second episode, you still you you really only have one, possibly two of our regulars. We don't know still what the what the mission of the show is. We don't know where things are going to go. So, it, I guess it all depends on what our expectations are from a pilot. Because if we're if we're Judging it by the expectations from the previous pilots, I mean, it's kind of a fail. But let me couch that by saying, does does the end of the episode make you say, man, I want to see what happens next? Because if that's the case, then yeah, it's a, it's a rousing success. Sure. And I guess the, the perspective that I share is that uh, it actually ranks maybe second for me in, in the wider pantheon of Star Trek pilots, only because... You know, we go back to that word departure that comes to my mind. And probably more than any other Star Trek pilot, the Discovery first episode 
is very much about one character, whereas virtually every other Star Trek pilot, I mean, there's characters that have greater levels of focus, but you still get a very well-rounded idea of who everyone is in virtually every other Star Trek pilot. So in that respect, Discovery kind of stands on its own by giving us a character study of who Michael Burnham is and what she brings to the table and what her cultural experiences have been. And we sort of get to see maybe one or two other people that might be in the show for the long haul, but it's squarely focused on her. And I find, I find her story very personally compelling. So in that respect, I, I don't know if I would necessarily put it above the emissary, which before was probably my favorite pilot of the entire franchise, but it might come close. But I think, you know, Zachy and, and Rachel, you guys make excellent points about wanting to place it in context with everything that'll follow. So, uh, so we'll see how it goes from there. Now, I thought that it might be kind of fun, especially as fans, to talk about the timeline of the show. Zachy has already alluded to it. It's pretty close to the cage. And yes, it's just a couple of years removed from the cage. It's a decade before the original series and about a century after Enterprise. But it is coming up against some well-established elements of Star Trek continuity, which before I watched the first two episodes, I might have thought would have been a limiting factor on the kinds of stories they could tell. And boy, was I wrong. But what do you guys think about the the place that this show occupies in the canon, Rachel? Um, well, I'm ha- I'm happy they're doing it in the uh, in the non JJ, the prime timeline. Yeah, the prime the prime timeline, um, just so that they can't mess with things too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little bit disappointed, not that disappointed, but a little bit that they didn't sort of seem to set it within some uh, of the events that we kind of already knew had happened. Yeah, like, you ran for our Federation 100, first 150 years book pretty fast after you watched it. Yeah, well, I was wondering if, like, this Klingon war was a thing that was that had been alluded to in other shows, and it wasn't in there at all. In, mm-hmm. in, the, in that book of history, it just, the only thing about this period of time it mentioned was Tarsus IV and then just James Kirk's autobiography basically right yeah um so it seems like they're playing with kind of uh an an open field really of Mm. of things that they can um kind of retcon into having happened right none of them have been mentioned in any other shows yeah sure zaki uh you know i i think for me my initial thought when i first heard it was set prior to the original series was why and and more because I I feel like to some extent you're 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 handcuffing yourself as a creative because the 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 restraints of canon are such that it's like why subject yourself to that like you know I mean this is this is something where uh, I I my initial thought was like if you move it ahead you know post uh, Deep Space Nine and, and Voyager you've got a little bit more of an open uh, you know open field in front of you uh but but you know it's i'm i'm willing to roll with it i i think that i'm uh, what i'd like to see is more of an effort in in the future what i what i hope to see is little subtle ties in with not only enterprise but also with what what fans know is 
supposed to be happening at the same time in, in other parts of the Trek universe. I think, I think there's an opportunity. I'll tell you, I mean, to me, honestly, I feel like it's a missed opportunity to not have brought in Ben Cross to play Sarek. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that, that was something because, because I mean, the, these, these characters exist and they're meant to be kind of the same as their prime version. So to me, I'm like, well, James Frain was fine as Sarek, but like, why not? You've already got a Sarek, you know? And in, in the in the 2009 movie, Prime Spock recognized Chris Pine as the Kirk that he knew. A, and Scotty also. Sure. And Scotty, right, yes, right. absolutely. That's right. Cicero, how about you? Yeah, I, I, I definitely do think that there is so that there's a lot of stuff within within the within the pilot episode that makes you feel like uh, there that maybe they did they didn't put this in the right timeline. Uh, not, I, I think it's, I, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually on board with it being in the prime universe. I think that the cinematic universe should remain separate. Um, sure. and I'm okay with that, but, but I, you know, I look at the costumes, I look at, uh, the technology that they're using and they, and they really do, they're kind of hamstrung by the fact that they, they they're sitting in between two shows, one that was produced in 2005 that was the predecessor, and then there and then you know was the was the forebearer, and then the 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 show that precedes it was was shot 50 years ago, yeah. and and you know just from you know from an effects perspective, but also from a technology perspective from what they wind up using in the show they really hamstring themselves and i look at like the uniforms are dramatically different from anything that i've ever seen uh in a in a star trek sh- show and and it, you know like maybe they explain that and and you know and a, as the series goes on um but i thought that that was a, a very weird stylistic choice both in the costuming um you know once once you sit back and you think about where they set this within the timeline had they set this after uh after voyager and ds9 then they could have the sky would the skies would have been the limit no pun intended uh in in terms of how they uh how they dealt with both technology how they dealt with costumes and the types of stories that they could uh they could produce um, I thought I th- the other thing that I thought was was weird, and maybe we'll get into that also, is you know obviously the main protagonists are are the Klingons, and of course, and you know any good Star Trek nerd knows that the Klingons w- were essentially humans with unibrows uh, in the Ooh, TOS. Yeah, we we actually have a viewer question that's oh. about that topic specifically. Oh, okay, so, sorry, so, viewer. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely get into that. I think it definitely merits conversation. The only thing that I'll add, because you know, as a as an original series fan, primarily, uh, this did kind of put me off a little bit. I actually got excited when I heard that Brian Fuller had originally pitched the idea of an anthology show that could take place in multiple eras of the Star Trek continuity. Uh, I'm sorry to see that that didn't happen, but you know, there was a tie-in novel that just came out with Discovery by uh, David Mack called Desperate Hours. And in that book, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but within the first 50 pages or so, they actually encounter the Enterprise. 
And it's the Enterprise as commanded by Christopher Pike, and Spock is already serving, and Number One is the first officer. And uh, there is a pretty interesting rationale for the big difference in the aesthetic choices. And it's clever. I mean, obviously, Star Trek EU does not work the same way as Star Wars does, whereas everything now in Star Wars EU is actually canonical with the movies. Star Trek has never treated anything that wasn't on screen as canonical. I kind of hope that changes at some point just because those stories are really cool. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely it takes a lot of getting used to if you're a longtime fan for the adjustments and aesthetics and the kinds of uh, concessions that they're going to make in order to accommodate telling a story in that part of the timeline in 2017. So it's definitely pretty interesting in that regard. But why don't we move on? Well, before we, we move on, so you guys are all pretty much in agreement that this is a show that should have taken place in the prime reality, Rachel? Y- yes. Yes? Yes. Okay. And uh, Zachy, how about you? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And Cicero? 100%. 100%. All right. So we're all in agreement there. That's perfect. All right. So the characters, obviously the core of any uh, good narrative endeavor, and most especially Star Trek. So we finally got our very first look, a substantive look at the person who's going to conceivably drive this show until the very end, Commander Michael Burnham, played by Sonequa Martin-Green. So what do we think of the kind of perspective that she brings to the table? What do we think of her as a Starfleet officer? Uh, Cicero, do you have a, a perspective? I, well, so the the interesting thing is, and obviously she has come from um from her own fandom in with the walking dead the interesting thing is i'm not a fan of the walking dead i i don't know that show that well so i wasn't familiar with her work um prior to this uh which i think was was a was a blessing for me um so i you know i just got to watch her watch her perform as as uh michael which was which was perfect um, I, I thought that she was great. And I think that something that you said earlier, Chris, really kind of clicked with me is the, is the fact that we don't really know who the characters on the show are except for uh, Michael Burnham and, 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 and Sarek. Um, mm-hmm, sure. so, so like, you know, we, we, we can feel pretty confident that those are going to be characters that, that persist going forward within the season. Um, but it is really strange to have a pilot and and a second episode really kind of concentrate and focus solely, you know, or at least, you know, primarily on, on one character uh, and not the crew as a whole. Yeah, definitely. How about you, Zachy? I, you know, I... I, I think that she's really just a magnetic presence. I I was mentioning uh, watching the show as I said to my wife, I was like, you know, I remember when when DS9 started and so much of the conversation was, oh, they got, you know, it's a it's a black captain, it's a big deal. And then when Voyager starts like, oh, it's a female captain, what a big deal. And I love the fact that we have a black female lead and it's not a big deal. Yeah. Oh, it, it still is a big deal. <laughs> well, uh, d- d- As, d- not to the not to the same extent but it is still a big deal fair enough i mean certainly um uh, uh in in my limited uh you know what I've seen. It, that the, that hasn't been as much the focus of the conversation, but I'll I'll certainly uh, I'll I'll uh, accede to that point. But I mean, I think they couldn't have picked a better actress. I think she's terrific. I think 
I'm I'm somebody who kind of fell away from The Walking Dead, but I always liked her on it. So when I heard that she was the lead, I was like, oh, that's a great choice. And I think uh, the 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 arc that they've sketched in for her and they're sort of alluding to. I mean, I think it's it's I'm fascinated to see where we end up. I mean, what what does her role as a human raised on Vulcan, what, what does that point towards? What, what, is, what do they intend to be the conclusion of that arc? I think that's interesting. Definitely. Rachel? Well, I, lo- I love her character. It's great. I think um, that this sort of like outsider characters like Data and Worf and Odo, they've always been some of the most interesting characters on all the shows Mm -hmm. and so i think it's really brilliant to have that character be the lead character because everyone kind of wanted data to be the lead character in in (laughs) tng anyway um and i think that she also fits in really well with sort of like a modern tv in that she's uh kind of a tortured hero or uh, she has sort of some darkness to her which is it really you know that's really big right now Mm -hmm. with your your breaking bads and your mad men's and 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 the like so i I think it was a a really great uh a really great choice and um i like sinequa martin green she was great i like that this show passed the bechdel test in the first 30 seconds really passing it (laughs) yeah really which really? Well, I, I really uh, appreciated. So, yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, I am too. I mean, and, and to the point about the outsider characters, I also think that it's interesting. They automatically made her significant in the canon by relating her to Sarek and by extension to Spock. Uh, because Spock was obviously the original outsider character in the franchise, and he's certainly the most iconic character in the franchise at large. So... That was the thing that, as a fan, kind of immediately made me pay attention, was the fact that she is, for all intents and purposes, the adopted sister of one of my absolutely favorite characters in the entire franchise. So I thought that that was uh, an interesting way to position her, but just on her own merits, I like that we are also seeing that she is doing something that took Spock upwards of, God, 25, 30 years to do, which is embrace the side of them, the, the more natural side of themselves, you know, because Spock obviously had a pretty tough time embracing his humanity that he didn't really fully resolve until his career on the Enterprise was almost finished. And it's ta- we, we see Michael Burnham seven years before the start of the show, and then, you know, it picks up seven years later, and she's much more at peace with humanity, with where she comes from. But she still gives tribute and pays tribute to her Vulcan upbringing and a reliance on logic, as we see uh, in her her decisions in dealing with the Klingon threat. So she's a fascinating character, and I think she can more than handle the the weight of leading a Star Trek show, especially a Star Trek show today. So I'm really interested to see where things go. but what other characters stand out? Because we don't, like I said before, we don't see a lot of other long-term characters. In fact, we might only see one other long-term character, at least as far as I know, in Saru, played by Doug Jones, who I certainly love already. He seems so timid, right. and, but he also seems very, very sure of himself while also having that 
overly cautious attitude that is probably the thing that's keeping him from his own command, if I were to guess. But, uh, Zachy, what did you think of some of the other characters that stand out? Saru, maybe Captain Georgiou? Uh, I mean, to be honest, neither of them really made a huge mark on me, and, and that's not a reflection on the performances, but I think it's i think i think saru has just a handful of scenes and so so you, you sort of get the sense that he's like space eeyore basically right. <laughs> um, and and that's fine so far but i mean it's it's not not much to to hang hang an opinion on and then i you know with with captain georgiou i mean she's her function in the story thus far is as a receptacle for you know sort of the the grief that uh uh Michael Burnham is going to carry with her so she's she's sort of uh, uh, like she's a function of that so that you know it you sort of you see the 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 wires so to speak as far as what why her character uh, is in there so I mean ultimately these first two episodes don't give us much of anything other than Michael Burnham and that's fine if she's going to be the focus of the show anyway yeah sure Cicero, how about you? Did anyone jump out at you, or are you pretty much in agreement with Zaki? I'm mostly in agreement with Zaki. I think the the other character that stood out to me only because I knew who the actor was was uh, Doctor Nambu, uh, who's played by Malik Panchali of uh, of Community fame. So oh, Thirty Rock. So uh, Thirty Rock. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, shame on me. I'm slapping my head. Um, so, um, but yeah, but you know, but here's, here's a guy that it was like, oh yeah, there's that guy that I've seen before. And I, you know, I, I loved his character before. Um, so, you know, I'm happy to see him working and, and, you know, outside of that, but I, I think because the, the episode was so very much focused on who Michael Burnham was and, and um, her conflict um, with with believing and understanding to her core that she was right when when th- everything that you see in front of her would dictate that she is wrong um, made me pay attention to really no one else but her. And maybe it was just the portrayal that was just so compelling. That made it that way, but I think also that you know the the story is kind of driven behind, or you know, is driven behind her leading everyone to wherever uh, discovery is going to take us. Yeah, that's a, that's a great perspective, Rachel. Just a shout out to Admiral Brett Anderson. Thank you, rest in peace. He's like the camp counselor of space. <laughs> And Takuvma was Jason this time, it seems. <laughs> well, before we move on to the next topic, it's just kind of piggybacking off of this one. What about the performances? I mean, it's definitely a modern flavor of television, but overall, how did the caliber of performances strike you? Uh, Cicero, how about, how about you first? I, I mean, I think that everyone that we got uh, on this show were all veteran actors, and, you know, so that, so, you know, obviously that polish sh- shine through immediately, um, as opposed to some of the other shows where, you know, they were all veteran actors as well, but, you know, may not have necessarily been on television, uh, ever or for that long or, uh, you know, or maybe it had been a while. Um, so these, these, these characters all, all screamed authentic. 
Sure. Zachy? Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, it, it strikes me as... It's it's distinct, you know, fr- from from the previous shows. I in the in the sense that uh, there's there's a lot more conflict than we're used to seeing in the Star Trek universe, and uh, that definitely. My friend, my partner Brian, who is by no means a a, a you know Trek devotee like me, that, that was his first reaction. He was like, "People are yelling at each other a lot." <laughs> and and that's definitely you know uh rick berman talked in the past about how he'd sometimes put like a blindfold on this bust of gene ronberry in his office and i wonder like would this would this be like put putting the blindfold on you know uh and and you know that that's good i, I ultimately because it's this is an earlier era of star trek and so uh i don't, I don't mind there being conflict between the human characters because I'm assuming that this is a journey of discovery, no pun intended, where we're going to end up at a at a place where you know people figure out, okay, hey, we got to we got to put our differences aside and get through this. So, uh, you know, I, I I appreciated the 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 level of interaction that we had between them. Yeah, sure, Rachel. Well, I thought the performances were great. They were had none of the sort of awkwardness that some of the previous series pilots could could kind of have. Um, I felt like uh, Sinequa and Martin Green did really well with... Mm. Um, she had a lot to do, well, a lot to do. And, yeah. and um, with, she felt like she had like a ton of like monologues and long lines and, mm-hmm. and stuff that really could have sounded stupid in a lesser person's a lesser actor's lesser performer yeah Yeah, in a lesser actor's hands so um yeah she carried it so definitely yeah and i was impressed basically i mean just to kind of sum up the idea i i thought that uh the performances were all top notch especially considering the uh the franchise i mean i'm always going to to want to see the absolute best from Star Trek, and I think they're definitely doing a good job of putting uh, their best foot forward when it comes to the performances. Obviously, you know we'll have to see how some of the other characters do, but overall, I'm uh, I'm very impressed with what we've seen thus far, particularly from our lead. I think she's going to be fantastic. But uh, you know the the next thing I was going to bring up is actually kind of. Uh, it's a part of the second episode. So before we start shifting gears to talk to the second episode, does anyone have any final thoughts to offer on episode one? I do. Um, yes, sir. I was, I was just going to say uh, shout out to the casting uh, because holy crap, is it diverse? Yes. Um, and I loved, I loved every moment of that. Um, you know, to see women, you know, women of consequence, obviously, like we like we've uh, mentioned, like Rachel mentioned, I mean, it passed the Bechdel t- test before the first commercial break. Uh, so, you know, and, and then just to see, you know, people of color everywhere uh, throughout the cast was was a beautiful reflection on, again, the idealized future of of what all of Star Trek represents, at least for me. Absolutely. Zachy? No, I, I think that covers it. I mean, I, uh, it's it's a, a vision of, of what humankind can be, and hell, that's what Star Trek is supposed to be. So not, not, not a bad start. Definitely. And I totally agree. Uh, obviously, you know, you hear the words visibility matters, 
And what better franchise to take that idea forward than Star Trek? Right, Rachel? Yeah, well, and I feel that with respect to the diversity, it, it's not even an, I mean, it's not an idealized future. It's it's the real present in that, <laughs> like, the, like, the professional context in which I work, there are lots of women and lots of people of color. And so it feels more real when the casting is more diverse. Yeah, especially an organization that is geared towards science and exploration anyways, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well... I think that kind of sums everything. We'll, we'll get into a couple of loose threads from the Vulcan Hello, but why don't we transition to talking about the battle at the binary stars? So this might actually bring up potentially the first criticism, at least that I have, because I'm about to ask all of you something that I kind of think maybe shouldn't have been the case. But, so obviously the way that this works, and for those people who maybe haven't watched the show yet, first of all, why are you listening to this? And (laughs) second of all, hopefully you don't necessarily need this explained to you, but the way that this is working is that uh, CBS decided to show the very first episode on broadcast television. They released the second episode the same day, but you had to go to the CBS All Access streaming service, which is where the rest of the episodes will be able to be consumed. So, should this episode, or should the opening salvo, I should say, have been split into two parts, particularly on two different mediums or would it have been better to actually have like a two-hour feature-length pilot like most of star trek has done in its franchise history zaki yeah i think i think the decision to split it up like that was asinine it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it's it's in essence uh the first two episodes together have some degree they come to some kind of conclusion as opposed to uh, ending completely in the middle and you know you're trying to get people to to sample this this news this streaming service uh, it it just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me i mean the the, the one thing i would offer is it might have made more sense if if they dropped the entire season on CBS All Access after showing the pilot. And it's like, hey, if you want to see the whole rest of the series, then jump over here. That that might have made more sense to me. This I I I'm I'm struggling to understand what the what the logic is behind how how CBS approached this. Sure. Rachel. I I feel like it was probably a good business decision. I <laughs> like you're going to get people to sign up first for your little streaming service for <laughs> by doing this. Um, I, I don't think it was a, the nicest thing to do. <laughs> I like, and, um, but, but I think it definitely is going to get people sucked into your, into the show. Yeah. Well, yeah. in, into the streaming service, which is what they want. Just as an aside, before I hand it off to you, Cicero, I was actually kind of happy when I logged into it for the first time that I Love Lucy is on it, because I love Lucy. <laughs> but my friend, what do you think of uh, splitting it up? Well, uh, so I'm just going to go on record right now and say that I abhor the fact that we've got a, yet another streaming service uh, to to uh, sign up for. Um, and And obviously, you know, what makes me... Even more upset is the fact that it it was clear that there was a decision made 
to split these episodes up and and split it, you know, exactly where they did on this cliffhanger that made you feel compelled to at the very least sign up for the for the for the free trial so that you could see the conclusion of this of this you know extra long pilot episode um and, and the other the other part of that uh Zachy that you that you you know that you kind of talked about which was you know had they released the entire series then maybe it would have made more sense well that would have made perfect sense except that they're giving away CBS All Access for a week for free, which means that all of the Star Trek fans would have uh, stayed up and and lost, you know, countless hours of sleep to finish watching the entire series in a week and then canceled the service. Right. And CBS makes no money. Right. Um, So, of course, you know, spread that out over the course of, of four or five months, six months, whatever it may be, to try and maximize the amount of money that you can get out of at least the Star Trek fans. And I I mean I think it's I think it's disgusting. Um but it is it is their model and you know I mean it's their show they have every right to do uh what they want to do and uh you know and I I think time will tell whether or not that was that was a smart decision decision overall. Yeah, and I'm I'm in general agreement with everybody. I mean it's uh it is a little annoying to have to pay for another streaming service as was said. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as a massive Star Trek fan, if CBS will give me Star Trek, I will give them money. That's basically <laughs> what, that was what my attitude was. So yeah, I feel much better for our, our friends to the North in Canada who can actually just watch this show on Netflix as opposed to having to go to a network specific streaming service. But Hey, at least I got, I love Lucy out of it too. So it's not a, it's not, not a total loss. So this episode opens with a very unique uh, perspective, a very unique way of trying to deal with the Klingons. It's what Michael closed episode one with as we led immediately into episode two. It seems to demonstrate by, uh, you know, her actually trying to openly attack the Klingons that are directly across from the Shenzhou that uh, she's not averse to operating outside of the normal standards of what constitutes Federation officer behavior. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of a Vulcan hello, which we didn't really touch on, but the Vulcan hello is basically fight them, which I thought was very ironic considering normal Vulcan philosophy. I wonder how Surak would have been with that interpretation of, uh, of Vulcan philosophy. But what do you guys think of Michael's brashness? in trying to deal with the imminent threat, at least conceivably imminent threat, of the Klingons in a way that kind of violates the standards of what constitutes an officer of the United Federation of Planets. Zaki? Well, you know, I think what what's, what's worth pointing out is that the Vulcans are devoted to logic, but not necessarily to nonviolence. So you can see a scenario where if violence is the most logical approach— that would be the course of action they pursue, which certainly seems to be uh, the the perspective that Michael, uh, you know, adopts. Which is, look, this I don't want to do this, but this is the most logical thing to do in order to save lives down the line. And in that sense, you can easily see somebody like Spock making that same choice on an episode of the original series. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, sure. so, so I, I found, you know, I think that I, I love the fact that sort of culturally we have this notion of what Vulcans are uh, that allows for the revelation of the quote unquote Vulcan hello to be a nice little twist. Mm-hmm. You know, Cicero. Yeah, I, I think Zaki uh, said it perfectly that that well, you know Vulcans are logic logical and and this Vulcan hello is contextual uh, based on the the species that they're dealing with. Uh, you know, Vulcan hello for for humans uh, during first contact was to to say live long and prosper, but and and the and their first contact with with uh, Klingons was was exactly the same way, and they. They come to learn that that the way that you say hello to a Klingon is by attacking them, um, and you know, and they they respond to violence. So obviously, uh, uh, Michael's Michael's upbringing as a Vulcan, essentially as a human, and you know, as a Vulcan in human skin, understood that perfectly, and and of course, it violates all of the Federation norms. But but you're not dealing with, you know, you're not dealing with an adversary or an opponent that thinks the same way that you do. So, you know, so clearly, logically, you have to operate in, you know, you have to speak uh, the language of your of your opponent and your adversary. Yeah. Make perfect sense. Yeah, sure. Rachel. I mean, well, she she was right, right? Like <laughs> they they didn't give them the Vulcan hello, and they you know got mm. pretty messed up because of it. So they happened. got a Klingon hello yeah. instead. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, I mean, I can't dispute the the facts at, or the events as they transpired. Certainly. Uh, it was a little jarring, though, for me. It's not something that I will say, oh, I'm against the fact that she acted this way. No, I mean, it makes sense from her perspective to try and show strength. And historically, that's perfectly in line with what we've seen from Klingons before. They respect strength, and if you show it to them, then they could very well respect you. So uh, pretty a pretty interesting move as far as establishing how certain... Michael is about what she's capable of and how she's able to discern a threat and react to it. So uh, it was it was definitely very interesting. But, you know, it kind of leads into something else. Violence in Star Trek, the, the franchise as a, as a whole hasn't shied away from it, but they certainly talk a lot about shying away from it. But with Discovery, we are now apparently seeing the breakout of a full-scale war within the first two episodes. And that's a unique occurrence in the franchise. I mean, it took about six years for Deep Space Nine to get to the Dominion War, and those were some of the best episodes of that show. But what do we think about jumping into an armed full-scale conflict right out of the gate when it comes to this show? Rachel? I feel a little weird about it. Uh, Like I said, one of the things that I really like about Star Trek is the exploration and and the learning of about all the characters and their backstories. And and I feel like a little worried that some of that's going to get lost with just action, action, action. Mm -hmm. Sure. Cicero. I I think that if you, if you look back on the Star Trek series, uh, you realize that they were all a product of the time that in, in which they were produced. Um, uh, You know, uh, TOS Definitely was was talking about you know a harmonious future uh, in this time of of great turmoil. 
But if you if you look back to the last series that was on television, Enterprise, uh, you know, during its run, it 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 made a huge philosophical shift right after 9-11 um, because of the way that the, the viewers were viewing the outside world and the writers kind of fed into that. And, you know, that there wasn't a lot of tolerance for tolerance um, with within within the minds of the viewers, or at least that's what the writers perceived. And I think that uh, with the way television is working right now, the way that uh, the, uh, the the American public is is kind of dealing w- uh, with things right now, that mindset, you know, I mean, people kind of forget, but we've been at war for the last 15 years. You know, we've actively been in conflict for the last 15 years, whereas during TNG and Deep Space Nine and and Voyager, we were in the Cold War where we were spending a lot of time with diplomacy, uh, spending a lot of time trying to to talk out our problems to avoid conflict. And, you know, conflict was the last resort. And I think, you know, right now we're in a time in, in our history where we're conflict can easily be the first resort. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think it is just the product of the times. That's a great perspective. Zachy. You know, there's a, there's a line in deep space nine that I love and it's uh, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. Right. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I think, I think this iteration of star Trek, I have to believe will not be about breaking the the future that Roddenberry created. It's about pushing that future against uh, its own limitations and and getting around them or getting past them. I mean, you know, the truth is that uh, we ha- we know that whatever war happens here, it, we know what the future looks like, and it's it's the future of of Kirk and Spock, and more importantly, it's the future of Worf. And, uh, you know, sitting on, on the bridge of the Enterprise. So to me, that's what I'm interested in is, is uh, this point of mass conflict. We know the Starfleet that's going to emerge on the other side of it. So how, I'm curious, how are we going to get there? Sure. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. And I'm, I'm in general agreement with you guys, I think. I mean, Star Trek is always supposed to be a mirror of society, of the society in which we live. So that links up immediately with uh, the timeliness argument. And I think it's a very, very valid one. Uh, You know, we are a little too quick to try and go to our holsters. I think that that's a, a generally normal perception in the world that we live in now. And hopefully, you know, this show has enough material behind it and belief in it that uh, we'll get to actually see Star Trek lead again to the future that is so inherently optimistic. And yes, we we are absolutely at an advantage continuity-wise, Zachy, with seeing where things ultimately end up and what the major players will be in the future. And like you said, uh, Klingon on the bridge of the Enterprise. So if this just adds another wrinkle to that story then uh, then I'm definitely all for it. Now, uh, one of the other things that I want to talk about when it comes to this episode is the only major established franchise character that has made their presence felt so far is Sarek, the father of Spock. And this is kind of the only major criticism that I personally feel for episode two, and that's the, uh, the transwarp mind meld. 
the communal discussion that Michael and Sarek have after she's locked up in the bridge for a- attempting to take command of the ship without the captain's blessing. Uh, thought that it was just kind of it kind of disrupted the flow. It was a little too expository, but I am glad that we got to see a uh, perspective on Michael's childhood and where you know the capability of this came from. It's not like they couldn't explain it, but it did feel like it slowed the episode down a bit. But what did what did you guys think, Zachy? You know the thought that I had while watching. I I, I didn't even I didn't mind sort of this this new you know that like you say the trans warp mind meld i just kind of rolled with it because i was like oh i don't know what a mind meld is like i guess this is a thing that you you know what i mean i'm sure i've never experienced a mind meld but but what i did think was really neat was that this new character uh michael burnham has shared this experience with sarek that even spock never did you yeah. know, and if we remember, yeah, that's true. Spock ultimately doesn't get to mind meld with Sarek until after he's gone through Captain Picard. So I just, you know, I think the richness of this franchise and why, one of the reasons I love the fact that it's in the prime timeline is because we have this tapestry of before and after that gives everything such rich context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was what stuck out to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Cicero? I, I, I thought it was a little weird in, in the... So the transwarp mind will, will meld, which is perfectly coined TM hashtag it. That's that's perfect. Um, we have to hashtag space Eeyore. Right, well. right, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, that was one thing that was I rolled with it more than the other thing that I'm going to talk about, which is the fact that and, you know, I kind of alluded to it earlier the the technology, the fact that that there were all these holograms around. Where you know people were talking to people and they were they were full fully realized almost three D holograms as opposed to communicating to you know via trans trans warp uh, communications via view screens mm-hmm. was something that was a little off putting to me and it and you know it reminded me of the other star and that's wars um, where where. You know, with the prequels, you had a lot of that kind of uh, 3D communication with holographic images. And then again, uh, Michael Burnham playing the role of uh, Luke Skywalker and, and Sarek playing the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi in this transwarp mind meld, um, I thought was was a little a little strange, but I rolled with it. I was like, OK, this is you know, this is where you guys are going to take the series. I'm here. I'm along on the ride. Um, you know, let's let's see where it goes. The 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 holographic communications, I think, bothered me more. Than than the transwarp mind melt. Than the transwarp mind melt. That's that's interesting. I never really thought of it like that before. <laughs> now it's going to stick out of my mind on a rewatch. Rachel, I I couldn't really roll with it because like my my scientist anal, analyzing brain just was like, what is what is what are the rules? What is this mind meld? And and what are what do I know about it? And what are the rules? And, and and this doesn't fit with the rules that I know about. And uh, and then I was just kind of like, you know, the rules to the mind meld are that it does whatever the plot needs it to do. <laughs> yeah. And so the plot needed it to do this. And so I need to just relax. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was kind of like tense during it. Well, and he explained it a little bit that part of his Katra had re- now resided in her. 
Yeah, that didn't uh, make any sense to me. Well, <laughs> right. we, we've, we've seen it before, though. I mean, we saw Spock do it to Dr. McCoy through a mind melt, and that was what ultimately allowed him to become alive after being dead. But I'm, it's still jarring. So right? after Sarah... After Sarek dies, then, is he still alive in Michael if she's still Depends on around? whether or not she's still around in the 24th century, I guess. Yeah. There's no real way for us to, to know that for sure. Well, yeah, I think that those are all very good perspectives. I mean, I like, Zachy, that you brought up the idea that it was something that Spock never had the chance to do. Uh, that definitely gives it some more weight. Uh, still might slow the episode down a little bit, but we'll have to see. Mind melds generally in the Star Trek universe are not isolated incidents insofar as they can have long-standing ramifications. So we'll have to see what the uh, what the continued ramifications are of Michael's now rather intrinsic connection with her kind of adoptive father. But uh, you know, moving on a little bit. To one of the things that I've always personally appreciated. So we're changing gears now from one supporting character to another. The most memorable briefly seen captains in Star Trek. What I love is that even though you usually only see them for a little while, at least in most cases, they're actually really well fleshed out and they give service to the idea of what a Starfleet captain is supposed to be. Like, when you see a Starfleet captain, you know why they became a captain. The one that instantly comes to mind for me is Captain Robau from the 2009 film. I mean, he's in the movie all of, like, ten minutes, right? right. Before he's, he's his chest is opened up by Nero. But, uh, you know, Captain Robau was always a character that I thought was cool. Maybe we'll get to see Admiral Robau in this show. I kind of hope so. But, uh... That just kind of goes back to Captain Georgiou, and obviously she's not going to be a character of focus, at least we don't think so. I mean, we didn't get her body back on the Shenzhou before the show ended, so who knows what's going to happen. But uh, I really, really liked this character, and it just made me sorrier that we're not going to see more of her. Um, just because that strength and certitude that you expect from a Starfleet captain seemed very much present with her and it kind of the discussions that she had with Michael about the Vulcan hello specifically it kind of reminded me of the conversations that Kirk would have with Spock and McCoy because in that show obviously you have the center commander who's taking from cold logic and from heated passion and is trying to make the best decision that he can obviously this was just a two-way conversation but it evoked in me why she, why Captain uh, Georgia was the one who was calling the shots and why Michael wasn't a captain because she's going to lean more on what her experience tells her. But what do we think overall of Captain Georgia and how she sort of matches up in the pantheon of Starfleet captains? Zachy? Well, I, you know, I think the comparison you made to, to Farhan Tahir as, as Captain Robot was a really good one because, uh, Aside from you know the multicultural aspect, I think uh, they just they they're able to command the screen and command your respect without having to do much. Um, and you know when we talk about Michelle Yeoh, I mean I think her her sort of established persona is one of of sort of uh, serenity and dignity, and yet you know she could kick your ass all over the place. 
And so it's this perfect mix that she brings to play as as Captain Georgia. I mean, I think uh, it. You know, I, I alluded to earlier, like, oh, it's a shame that they kind of ruined the reveal or whatever about about her being short lived on the show. But man, they made the most of her screen time because she leaves a mark. Um, and yeah. and it's you know it's it, the wound uh, that that she suffers is is a wound that the audience will carry with with them because. Uh, you know, she is such a considerable presence. Yeah, absolutely. Cicero. She, uh, she is immediately, I mean, you know, from the, from essentially from the word go, uh, you, you believe that she is the captain, that you believe that she is in command. And uh, I appreciated that, you know, and obviously, you know, part of that, I think, was Michelle Yeoh. Uh, I think the other part was the writing. And, and then, of course, then her performance of of the of the words of the writer's words, uh, along with the direction that she was given, um, really, you know, made me believe that that this was a a, a wise veteran leader. And I yeah. don't I don't think uh that we've seen the last of Captain George Owl on the show. Um, I oh. think I, I I really believe that they are going to lean on. Uh, you know, another thing that is a sign of the TV times is the flashback. Yes. Um, that you know where they will flashback to some some conversation or some situation that is relevant to the current situation or that you know that 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 has some relevancy to whatever the current situation uh the main character is is dealing with and especially since this particular show is 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 going to or at least seems to be primarily a single character focused show i think that we will see a lot of burnham's and georgiao's uh, conversations in the past and, and, and get a more fleshed out version of their relationship over the course of the seven years from the time that she joined the cast of the, uh, uh, joined the, the crew of the Shinju to the point where we ultimately see, uh, George Al's demise or at least perceived mm-hmm. demise. Sure. Rachel? Yeah, I, I liked her. For the most part, I I would have to say that I was a little bit off-put by the very first scene. Because the very first time you see Captain Georgiou and Michael, they're violating the Prime Directive. (laughs) (laughs) And they're just like, oh no, it's fine as long as they don't see us. I'm like, wait, no, no, no. You're still very much uh, Interfering. interfering with these people or the the species mm-hmm. um so so I was, I was a little bit off put by that and then i didn't really understand what like i it was clever and cute that they drew the starfleet symbol with their footprints or whatever but i i, I really don't understand how the ship was able to see that mm-hmm. and, and so i was like uh a little i was very nervous but then it got better and I, I especially appreciated the scene where um, Michael and um, Saru, the, the mm-hmm. nervous guy, Spacey Yor, um, <laughs> were were sort of like 
telling her, like, Michael wanted to go blasting through space to go see the the Klingon torch thing. And Sarah was like, that's crazy. And so it, w- it was kind of very reminiscent of the um, Spock-McCoy kind of debates and mm-hmm. and ha- having these sort of two very polar opposites and, and being the the one who has to make the decision. Yeah, fun- funneling down into the person who actually has to make the call. Yeah, you know, it didn't occur to me, but maybe Saru might serve sort of the Dr. McCoy function in a triumvirate. Uh, we'll have to see. That wasn't really something that was in my head. He would be McCoy, but... Well, maybe not quite as irascible, but nervous. Uh, nervous. Yeah, nervous. <laughs> nervous McCoy. Nervous McCoy. Well, so that kind of brings us to uh, to the conflict. Uh, the conflict that spanned both episodes, but which certainly got a very interesting look in, uh, in the second one in particular. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but I was certainly expecting the Klingon Takuvma to be a much more long-standing and far-reaching adversary for this show. I was not expecting us to have potentially seen the last of him that quickly. But what did you guys think of him? And what about the conflict that he's kind of stirring up between the Federation and the Klingon Empire? Because, you know, his motivations seem like they are... Again, it's bringing up that mirror to society where he's taking this idea of monocultural purity and his wholehearted belief in Klingon superiority, along with the hybridization of somewhat religious fundamentalism. I mean, he talked about Kalis almost every time you saw him on the screen. Kalis, Kalis, Kalis. This was the thing that was his North Star that was guiding his actions into a conflict with the Federation. Uh, And that kind of seemed... Weirdly enough, and I think I saw someone else mention this elsewhere. It might have been on uh, on Trexpertise, which is a great YouTube channel if you've never seen it. But it's the idea of melding religious fundamentalism with this nationalist politics that's becoming more prevalent in both America and across the world. But what about this conflict stuck out to you guys? And let's start with uh, Cicero. Um, I, so I... I... I wonder if the showrunners will give us the opportunity to um, live in in the skin of a Klingon in in uh, ensuing episodes to kind of understand their perspective of this, because you know because it 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 screams fundamentalist right now, and and, and you know at least initially it you know and obviously it. it it doesn't leave the viewer, or at least me as the viewer, with a, a a good taste in my mouth to say that I can, while you know, while they're clearly the antagonists, while they're clearly uh, the provocateurs, um, that to to be able to to kind of um, emotionally ep- empathize with their plight and with their motivations. Um, and, and like, I didn't really get a sense of that. Um, I just kind of got a sense of, you know, we are fundamentalists. Um, you know, I'm going to, uh, the, the clans of the Klingon race are, are spread together, spread, spread apart. And, and I'm going to bring them together to, by invoking the name of Kalis and, and saying that we are one Klingon and, and, you know, and that's kind of it. Um, it's kind of a one note pony. But I'd I'd love to see uh, some some type of depth uh, there to kind of understand their motivations. Sure, Zachy. 
Yeah, you know, I I got to be honest. I mean, the 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 sort of uh, immersion in Klingon world got a little tiresome for me after a while because it, you know, at some point I was like, all right, can you just start speaking English and we'll pretend you're speaking in Klingon, you know? Sure. <laughs> like, I, I get you're going for verisimilitude. It's like I'm willing to, you know, like I'll I'll squint and pretend that you're speaking in, in the native language. Um, I I think that the, the you know, Takuvma, he, he didn't, particularly impress me as as anything other than a series of sort of Klingon cliches, you know. Uh I I feel like I need more and I and I think part of me was sort of put off by just the the way they look, which I'm that's not like a deal breaker on the show, but I'm like I kept I kept coming back to that. I'm like is this something you're going to address in story or is it just something we're supposed to pretend is they're all like they all look like this. And so I, I you know, I was sort of like trapped in my own head as far as that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, again, it's, it, I sound like a broken record. It's a little bit of like, well, I'm just kind of waiting. I'm, I'll wait and see where this goes. But for now, I'm, I can't say I'm very impressed by whatever they're showing us as far as the Klingons. Sure. Rachel. Yeah. I, I felt a little bit like they weren't the Klingons that I, I kind of knew. Like they, obviously they look different, but like the out, and there were elements missing from the the way that they were on screen that that I didn't really recognize. Like um, in the previous series, like the Klingons are warlike, but they also kind of like to party. <laughs> and these just the, these guys just seemed kind of a little bit super serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. I was very much distracted by the presence of the albino Klingon. Yeah, that's a good point. Because there has been an albino Klingon in the series before, in Deep Space Nine, where Jadzia Dax goes on a little revenge mission with her uh, elderly Klingon pals to... um, Kangkor and Koloth. Yeah, and the albino had killed their firstborn sons, and so they're going to go get revenge on this guy. And I am so curious as to whether that's the same character, and if it is, I'm really excited to see him interact with Koloth and mm-hmm. Kang and Kor, right? Yeah. Yeah. If that's if that's po- I mean, all of those guys are conceivably around yeah, in the timeline of the show takes I place. I think it would be really cool to see them. Yeah, I would too. I mean, I guess if I had to guess at the larger role that Takuma is going to serve, it's just as a figurehead for a newly established, unified Klingon ideology that will embrace the idea of war against the Federation. I can't disagree with, particularly with Cicero's point about not going too deeply. You know, it seemed like it was kind of surface level. But, uh, you know, if they hold him up as sort of a badge of what the ideal Klingon is going to be as this conflict conceivably escalates further beyond these two episodes, probably through at least the season, if not longer than that, then maybe more of a purpose will be served. But one of the things that I thought that was interesting as far as his rationale for going into an armed conflict with the Federation was that he denigrated not just the idea that their intentions are peaceful, but he also denigrated the idea of uh, saying that one of the things that made them both weak and disgusting was their embracing of multiple 
cultures and multiple races. And the show, at least as far as I could tell, seemed like it tried to stand in stark opposition to what that kind of thinking was. So as a question, and Cicero, I'm going to throw this to you first. Uh, Is Star Trek Discovery thus far a defense of multiculturalism? Uh, so yes, I think it was interesting and and I kind of want to, uh, piggyback off of, uh, something that you were saying just a second ago. I thought it was interesting that, uh, Takava was, uh, and I, I just, uh, butchered his name, um, the same way that he was, he was butchered. Um, uh, 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 his, his talking point was that the federation's the federation's great lie was that they come in peace and and i think that there is you know so you can draw you can draw very very easy parallels between um that that type of rhetoric from the from the klingons towards the federation with the type of rhetoric that you hear in the middle east with uh fundamentalists about um Amer- about Americans and and how you know we're you know that we believe ourselves to be a force for peace and you know and and you know from a perspective and this is kind of why I was talking about I think I, I would love to see the Klingons or, or I would love to be able to see the show talk about the Klingons perspective of this and and kind of give the viewer a little bit of insight into the Klingons perspective of of this war because there is a there is a a a a kernel of truth to both the we come in peace but don't culturally understand you as a as a species and can misinterpret how things operate for you um and and your your peaceful intentions are a great lie and the way that America has operated itself abroad um so so i i mean you know, i think that that's a an opportunity that i hope that the show takes uh to kind of explore those things um but will discovery i i mean i think discovery i think there is a chance that discovery is going to ultimately ultimately be a show about multiculturalism um and uh and and the and the beauty uh with 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 which uh lies within um but i always worry about that when the showrunners aren't diverse people you know people from diverse backgrounds themselves sure um, i understand so, so yeah so um maybe that maybe it'll happen um, and maybe they'll stumble along the way. It, you know, obviously, if they're if that is their goal, uh, I still say go for it. Um, and if you stumble, make sure you pick yourself back up and 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 keep moving towards that goal. Zachy, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have much I can add to to what Cicero said. I mean, I I, I essentially agree with everything he just said. You know, it, it uh, seems like it so far, and uh, let's see where things go. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's a significant amount of value in the idea of uh, of actually showing a three-dimensional conflict because it becomes far too easy to demonize when you don't see what the other side is. So, and hopefully that's the idea of something that'll, you know, progress further that's very much in keeping with what the franchise has shown us in the past. Yeah, I agree. All right. 
All right. So we had a couple of other topics, but we're kind of running up against the clock here. So why don't we just end our discussion of episode two? Uh, so we've now seen the opening salvo of Star Trek Discovery. So what are the final thoughts about the episode two and the collective first impression that this has made? What potential is there in the show to stand out positively from the rest of the franchise? Rachel? I think it was an interesting prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost feel like it, it's more of a prologue than a pilot. But again, like I said, I need the context of the rest of the show to really know. Um, I'm in. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't wait to see the discovery. I can't. I can't wait to see Jason Isaacs. <laughs> I like Jason Isaacs as the captain. Um, I want to see some other characters, and yeah, the um, the next time on preview had me pretty pretty excited. So yeah, excellent, Zachy. Yeah, you know what what I said in my in my print review is that this is essentially doing in about eighty some minutes what the first ten minutes of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie did. Um, and, and I agree with Rachel. I mean, this is in essence the prologue of the show because the what comes next spins off of this. But it th- what we've seen so far is not a represented representation of what the show is going to be per se, what the quote unquote status quo is going to be. So you know, it's it's uh, I'm I feel like the end of episode two puts us at a place where, as I mentioned earlier, you're like, all right. We've we've sort of concluded this act. Now let's see what happens next. Sure, Cicero. Yeah, I I felt uh, much the same as everyone else. Um, it it reminded me watching the first two episodes reminded me, and I think it exactly is is a prologue. Reminded me of the first episode of Battlestar Galactica, the the re the revive on Sci Fi. Um, yeah, where. where this was an episode, you know, this was a feature length, um, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, small screen film that uh, that you could you can watch, obviously, to to gain some information and gain some insight on the characters and on the conflict, but wasn't necessarily necessary for understanding exactly what the series essentially is going to be, because we still you know there's like for if you're a viewer right now you have no reason to understand or or believe that this show is pro- as properly named Star Trek Discovery you yeah. assume that you know that there will be a ship called the Discovery uh based on you know your understanding of of Star Trek lore and and being a fan of the of the uh the the universe but there has been no talk of it so far so um, you know, I, I'd be interested to see, you know, I don't think there'll be anyone that will be that person, but I'd be interested to see how a person who comes in and just starts by watching episode three onward would view the series. Sure. Excellent. Well, I think that's a good note to, uh, to close it out on. Generally, I, I feel the same way. I mean, it seems like uh, there is a lot of potential for the show to stand out in the franchise, not least of which because of its aesthetic choices and certainly its budget. But uh, cautious optimism. I've, I was pretty... Honestly, I expected not to like these first two episodes, and I absolutely did. So that I will just call a win. 
and I will hope that the rest of the series follows suit. So we're going to transition now to taking a few listener questions before we get taken out. So uh, let's open up the old communicator. All right. So we got a few questions in, and thank you everyone who decided to chime in ahead of our first episode and on relatively short notice. This was kind of a snap thing that was put together at the last minute. But hey, you know, you go the extra mile for Star Trek. So um, the way that I'll dole these out, I will ask one of us to answer a question just so we can get through some of them faster. I'm going to go ahead and take the first one, which comes to us from Twitter, a guy named Dennis at Bubsy00. And, you know, Dennis, I'm going to try and give some context to this, but his question is, why aren't the Klingons in Discovery the augmented Klingons that we saw in the original series? So what Dennis is making reference to is that, you know, obviously the way that Klingons look in virtually the rest of the franchise compared to how they look in the original series was totally different. And there was a uh, great two-parter in the last season of Star Trek Enterprise that dis- explained that discrepancy. And this is a period in time where conceivably some of those Klingons should look more human like they do in the original series. Uh, honestly, I wish I had a better answer for you. I just don't know. Uh, <laughs> we Hopefully it's something that they're going to have to address just because you would think that um, you'd want to see maybe some segments of Klingon society that have to live with the augment virus that has now extended into a couple of generations. But yeah, we, we're just not totally sure yet. So uh, the next question comes to us from a friend of mine, uh, Tim, on Facebook. And he has a pretty interesting one that I'm going to throw to Zachy. Do you feel that the show is true to the spirit of Star Trek? Or is it more along the lines of what he says, Game of Thrones in space? Well, I, I definitely don't think it's Game of Thrones in space, uh, at least based on what we've seen so far. And, you know, I mean, I think I think if we broadly define the spirit of Star Trek as uh, people from a variety of backgrounds coming together uh, in, in common interest and trying to... Uh, explore the universe and themselves uh i i don't i haven't seen anything uh, so far that would dive divest me of that notion so i'm i'm gonna tentatively say yes barring something barring a a star star fleet based red wedding you know um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah here here if i if i may chime in for a second on, on yes. this one and i would i would personally say i think it is somewhere in the middle um, because the one thing that was drastically different from in, in the first two hours of Star Trek, uh, Discovery versus all the other shows was the amount of conflict that you saw on the, within the crew. Um, yeah, you know, sure. obvious, obviously spearheaded by, uh, Michael Burnham. Uh, but I mean, the fact that there is a mutiny before the first episode ends, before the pilot ends. Um, by the commander, um, you know, by the second in command is, is a, is a huge departure from everything that you've ever seen in, on, you know, as, at, at least from a Federation crew. Uh, so, you know, at least initially when, you know, when, when things start off and, you know, maybe the next closest amount of conflict was, were the things that you see on DS9. Um, but, but so, uh, you know, from that perspective, I think that there definitely was 
uh, something that would make your eyebrows raise and say that this isn't the Star Trek that that I grew up on. Um, sure. So, so yeah, I can I can see the Game of Thrones kind of influence there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. The next one I'll throw to Rachel, which comes to us from one of my old friends at the old Modern Myth Media podcast, Josh. He sent it to me over text message. Says, is it okay for Star Trek to ever not be Star Trek? And by that he means things like mutiny, interestingly enough, violating the Prime Directive, divisive issues, etc. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think it's fine to have more conflict. I think that, um, especially this. This series being set where it is in the timeline is a, a lot a lot of the sort of more utopian aspects of of Star Trek came into play in the like TNG era and that later timeline. And so yeah, I guess you can imagine that it, the earlier part of Starfleet there's maybe a little bit more conflict, maybe um stuff stuff happens yeah well and piggybacking off of that briefly i know that even in continuity there was even an episode of uh, voyager where that actually featured captain sulu in a, a mind meld induced kind of flashback but captain janeway had spoken briefly about this era of the federation where everybody was a little too quick to grab their phasers and where only a fraction of the galaxy had been explored in that time compared to where they were in the 24th century so yeah, I think the the point's well taken. And he also asked something about um, the utopia designed by Roddenberry restricting creativity. And the only reason why I'm just going to briefly touch on it is because uh, that was a, a discussion and an argument that was basically settled in the Next Generation writers' room. Like they they felt constricted by the kinds of restrictions that Gene Roddenberry placed on the franchise for actually creating engaging conflict between members of the crew. Roddenberry felt that they're too evolved for that and they've gotten past that kind of conflict. And the TV writers, rightfully so, including Ronald D. Moore, felt that his hands were kind of tied. So I think at this stage of the franchise, we've definitely moved past that. But it's definitely a good uh, question, especially if you're not quite as familiar with the ins and outs of uh, of the franchise. So... I'm just going to do one more question, and I apologize to the people who uh, who asked them. Maybe we can get to the other questions next week, presuming we don't get a flood of new ones. But to take us out, Zachy, a uh, question from Manning Franks, who's the audio engineer of GeeksGamers.com, who edits Geek Pulse Radio. is a very talented young man, at like underscore Peyton on Twitter. He asks, for someone who's admittedly a Star Trek novice, what would you recommend for a swamped college newbie like me to jump into the franchise? Oh wow! Um, you know, I'm 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 going to say watch uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Uh, I think that's a, that's a show that really you don't have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the franchise, but it gives you a grounding in sort of the the technical framework that it exists in. But more importantly, it gives you a grounding in the the human underpinnings of all of it, which is our relationships with each other. And uh, I think that's, that's my, that's my prescription is always wrath of Khan. Amen. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's a great movie and uh, an even better movie to watch on the big screen as we did recently. What, First what time a, I'd seen it in a theater. Amazing. It was I've I've lost count of the number of times I've seen that movie, but it was like seeing a brand new film. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. No argument here. Well, I think that's probably going to end up doing it for the first show. How do you guys feel? Is this, is this good? This is a good groove to get into? I'm ready to live long and party. <laughs> yeah well cicero you feeling all right with I'm, it? I'm feeling great man i've been drinking uh some romulan, romulan ale the entire time so uh yeah i mean i i feel no pain excellent yeah we'll have to we'll have to switch it up next week with some cardassian canar how about that might be a little too viscous well <laughs> well uh Guys, thank you so much for, for coming on and, uh, and thank you at home for listening to it. Obviously, you know, this is a new ongoing Star Trek TV show. So we're going to try and bring you episodes of this podcast with every new episode of the show. Star Trek is more than worthy of, uh, of our ongoing attention, as I think we've demonstrated in this first episode. So pretty excited to bring the ongoing adventures in the Star Trek franchise to you from a perspective of four longtime franchise fans. So we hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. If you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you would write a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at D-I-S-D-E-B-R-I-E-F, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through the old communicator on Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. So, for Rachel, Cicero, Zaki, I am Chris. We hope you come along with us as we return next week to discuss Discovery's third episode. But until then, go boldly, my friends. Mm-hmm.